Welcome to the Brilliant Podcast. This is episode 22. We live in a world where most stories are just variants of the same story. Good beats evil, cowboys and Indians, profits and loss. This story has been told a thousand million times, and the ubiquity of it is what I would call a great tragedy. A tragedy because of the consequences it has on our imagination and our capacity to be more than we are. The Brilliant attempts to tell stories about the Brilliant Ones, the ones who live human-sized lives that may seem larger, the ones who dream beyond recognition. The ones who are satisfied not answering every question that critics ask, and just living with the contradictions. This is an attempt to tell different kinds of stories. Ones with complex moral plays, ones that aren't so clearly stories, ones that are of human size. I am your host, Eric Horn, joined by co-host Bellamy, and in the background, our sound engineer, Roy Burton. So, like you said, episode 22... And maybe it's appropriate at this point to point out that because I'm going to be leaving the the West Coast in about two months, we are going to have eight more episodes with the two of us, um, this one included. And during that time, we're going to try to cover some of the topics that are most exciting to us and that we think we'd get the most out of face-to-face conversations. And then after that, we're going to figure out what my continued participation in the show looks like, which is at the moment... Not totally clear to either of us, I think. It'll change, but who knows how much. Okay. So this week we're going to talk, that the theme is going to be bioregionalism, so that'll be in the second half, and we're going to talk a little bit about news, and transition with a bit of a conversation about humor, and yeah. Yeah, so I came across this article this week, and I just immediately felt like we had to talk about it. So there's a psychologist by the name of Yekaterina Murashova. And Murashova felt that today's youth, specifically teenagers in the case of this study, are so used to being stimulated all the time, are so used to being on telecommunications, are um, not used to sitting with their own thoughts, as crazy as that sounds. And I would say this definitely applies to a lot of people who are older than this as well. And they wondered whether kids today, as the saying goes, could sit and entertain themselves with their own imagination. And it was exciting to me because actually they used that specific word. And so there was a study on 68 teenagers between 12 and 18 who voluntarily spent eight hours alone without access to any telecommunications. So no internet, no phones, no computer, uh, no TV, no radio. And instead what they were allowed to do during this time were older activities like writing, reading, playing musical instruments, painting, needlework, singing, walking, and so on. Out of the 68, only three were actually able to go the full eight hours. One girl, two boys. Three of the participants described themselves as having suicidal thoughts. Five had panic attacks. 
27 experienced symptoms like nausea, sweating, dizziness, hot flushes, and abdo- hot flushes, excuse me, and abdominal pain, and everyone described themselves as f- feeling fear and anxiety. <laughs> um, almost all of them bailed by the second or third hour, and um, 10 people experienced anxiety after uh, um, 10, it only 10 people were able to go three hours before experiencing anxiety. And so I think they, they didn't quite go there in the article that I read, but it seems pretty obvious to me the symptoms that they're describing are those of physical withdrawal, those that we are used to hearing associated with substances like cocaine or heroin, uh, hard drugs that uh, induce strong physical withdrawals. And it's an amazing thing. I mean, it, it teaches us about our habits. It teaches us about how much we need that little fix. I mean, one of my spiels at the beginning is talking about, you know, e- equating a non-normative drug behavior with that kind of fix. And I think we see it playing out here. And yeah, it's dark times when uh, the inside of one's own head is so scary that the not having an obvious electronic distraction from it causes that much distress. Yeah, I mean, there's so many <clears throat> fascinating consequences that come out of this, not the least of which is you know, as someone who's a little, little older than a lot of my friend and my friendship circles, I note the increasing gap that you know we would all that we would call the generation gap or age gaps. And I and I used to not notice it as much, but basically since the rise of the cell phone and the small screens captivating people's attention, I, along with many other means, more mainstream commentators, have really noticed this this transformation in how people. Uh, consider human relationships and and what what they think is polite behavior and not polite behavior, and uh, and so for this this tells me that that the generation of people who have yet to meet you know the fifteen and younger crowd that I am not going to recognize them at all when they come yeah. of age that 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 um, yeah yeah and I feel like I actually just missed the worst of it I didn't have a cell phone until I was seventeen um, I didn't use the internet regularly until I was 17, and so I didn't quite have it. I mean, obviously, I was very much still developing mentally at that point, and so I did get the tail end of it, but I do think, you know, most of my childhood was was spent, like, playing with Legos and, you know, toys where it was very much about imagining scenarios and creating characters and playing that out, and I did play a lot of video games, but it wasn't, you know, this dominating part of my childhood, so I do think... <laughs> think I, I was just able to escape the trap here. I mean, the idea of experiencing nausea and sweating, it's sad. I mean, it's its kind of hilarious. Um, you know, I, it makes me wish I had been witness to seeing these kids or could have had a conversation with them about you know, what are you feeling? What do you want right now? Um, there's so much more I want from, from what the article gave. And um, the part I skipped was all of their symptoms went away immediately as soon as they were allowed access to the telecommunications and most of them immediately phoned a friend or immediately got back online yeah last week i uh uh, went back to my to where i'm from and i experienced this uh six-year-old child who more or less the entire time i was around they were focused on some sort of racing game on a tablet and um uh, uh another piece of data about two years ago, we we had an experiment here at the uh, at the compound, where we brought in a 17 year old to help them finish high school, and 
when they got here, they uh, were already addicted to the, to the telephone. And I, I sort of said, you know, once they work a job and can afford to pay for their own cell phone, have at it. But until that time, I didn't think that they should have a cell phone. And I was uh, uh, trumped. And um, <laughs> and I, I couldn't believe what I saw. I mean, it, it, it really was just a constant. They were constantly tethered to this device. So when I think about the difference between that 6-year-old and the 17-year-old, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just, I just experience, like, you know, when you, when you, your mind wanders and you're talking to someone or you're, you're in the presence of a person and then you snap back to reality mm-hmm. and, and, and when you snap back, you have this moment of confusion. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just basically experienced that there's going to be an entire generation who that, that, that experience, which I have rarely, I mean, I would say rarely that that's going to be their constant state of mental that's where their mental acuity is going to live is in this confusing place of being distracted from your device by a human and trying to catch up to what's actually happening in your physical body um yeah Yeah, when i was in my early 20s and i was in college i i had a few jobs and one of them was um an after school sort of uh tutoring slash uh you know, learning games sort of program, and and we had a lot of um, leeway with what the curriculum was as individual tutors. And I, because I have a martyr complex, um, kept taking on the the worst kids. You know, the the kids who were considered the worst students, and who a lot of other tutors went through <laughs> and uh, said, "Look, I can't work with this person anymore." And uh, the most extreme of them was a thirteen year old girl who absolutely had the phone thing going on that you were describing and it was almost impossible to work with her at all when she had her phone because she would literally be away from it for 20 to 30 seconds before going back and I eventually got to the point with her of saying we can't work together when you have your phone and the amount of distress and anguish and you know, running around the room yelling, screaming that was going on. I, it wasn't nausea and sweating, but it was absolutely you know, enraged protest and um, all these sort of fake trips to the bathroom in order to, to return <laughs> some sort of text. And, yeah. and I was like, no one has to go to the bathroom this many times. So, yeah, it's terrible. Um, and we well, you know a lot of a lot of science fiction stories talk about these sort of concepts, yeah. this idea of what it looks like for humans to have more and more of a relationship with, to their robot limbs mm-hmm. and to their robot mind that basically remembers everything for them and all the rest. And all of this conversation really prefigures a future where we sort of stop having a memory for much of anything at all. Yeah, and I mean, we talk about it now in the context of Wikipedia, looking up Wikipedia all the time, but I very rarely see it as an experience I do in a room. But of course, what this tends to forget is that the amount of knowledge domain you need to have to be able to not remember something and still be able to use it, it's it's tremendous. And, and I, um, you know, in other words, you need to know what to look up to be able to look it up. And knowing the answer to that question is... It's a huge problem. Anyways, I, I really feel like there's a lot of science fiction stories that that are sort of pointing towards this terrible future that we're entering. Mm-hmm. And Google Glass, as you may or may not know, um, is about to come back. Oh, really? In a form that is more uh, inconspicuous. 
The watch? Is that what you mean? Or? Google glasses, though, is the Oh, cam- no, no, I know, I know, but I'm saying it still is... It'll still be eyeglasses, okay. but, the, but it won't necessarily be visible. And there's already a competing project, product that just looks like big corner and glasses. <laughs> so the future, yeah, the future I, is coming fast, and, and our question really is, and this is this to me is sort of the anti-primitivist sort of tactical conversation is how do we prepare for that future? Mm-hmm. In other words, when do we feel like uh, one of the things that we do in our reading group is we sort of shame people who keep their cell phone on? Yeah. But over time, we've stopped printing out our readings. Right. So more and more people are now using their telephone and their tablet, tablets yeah. and and even computers to the study group. And so these are interesting tensions because on the one hand, I would love to say, fuck it. But on the other hand, that means taking responsibility, basically, for printing out readings every week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When the Google Glass thing happened, that was, what, about a year and a half ago? Two years ago? A couple years ago, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I allowed myself uh, some real admiration for the dignity that people were maintaining and saying that this is a horrific thing and, and reacting to it with physical violence, which mm-hmm. I felt was entirely appropriate. And I'm very curious now to see where it goes. I mean, I, I don't know that just making it... I mean, uh, I'm doubting that they're making it so inconspicuous that it won't still easily be noticed. And so I'm wondering if some of the same people who are smacking it off of people's heads and that sort of thing will engage in that kind of behavior again, or if bars and, and other social spaces will have those same sorts of prohibitions or are they just going to cave? I would guess that it will be enough. Now, in other words, part of the conceit of Google Glass was to be broadcasting, not only to be broadcasting, but also to be informing people that you're broadcasting. And basically, I think the, re- the Google's response will be to say, okay, you don't want to know? Because it's not as if there aren't already cameras in the room. Right. Right. I mean, in the case of the Google, Google Glass violence, there were several video cameras that caught everything. Right. And it's not like there aren't a shit ton of video cameras that catch. I mean, like, what was it? That the there was a crane that collapsed in New York City yesterday, mm. and people, I mean, dozens of people caught it on their phones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm reminded now of the transhumanist Sultan Isfan, who was absolutely welcoming, absolutely anticipating. Soon we're going to have them inside of our bodies, and you'll just be able to text message with a thought. And that's you know, to what extent is that going to become the communicative norm rather than conversation and eye contact mm-hmm. and actually speaking with our bodies? Yeah, that's true. I I mean, I tend to think that that, that level of a gap is still going to be after I'm dead and gone. Yeah. But you might catch the, t- the, the very beginnings of it. I'm hoping to be dead. <laughs> um, shall we move on? Sure. So, humor. You wanted to talk about humor. No, let's, t- let's do the other news stories. Oh, okay. Yeah, there was a funny one. I, I don't have actually that much to say about it, but there have been these um, blurbs about Ted Kaczynski because it's the 20th anniversary of his, his capture. Be- yeah, of his being captured. Yeah. 
And there was an interesting one that I would just recommend to people to check out, um, although it's on Yahoo News, which I always find to be horrific. I think it's from from the New York Times. Oh, it is? Okay. Well, it was reposted by them. But uh, that he had some correspondence with a college class for a while where, as part of this class, they were trying to talk about the issues of the day, one of them being technology. And so they wrote to a number of well-known people, including figures like Bill Clinton. And then one of the students actually said, let's write Ted Kaczynski. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he... I guess got back to them quite quickly and sent them uh, a long handwritten letter, and so it, was, it came to them in a thick envelope. And there was this sort of anxiety of, "Oh, we got this, <laughs> this thick envelope." <laughs> they give them a lot, a lot of white powder in prison to send to people. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, he I guess he engaged them quite a bit, and it seemed like it was a mutually enjoyable thing. And one of the f- interesting things about Ted is that he's still trying to write about all these things, and I, he actually. Uh, I'm told that he has another book coming, but um, but you know because he's been incarcerated since 1995. Five. Yeah, that he doesn't know about a lot of these things, including how ubiquitous the internet has become. And when I say doesn't know, I mean he doesn't have firsthand experience. He yeah. hears about them, and he has been from behind bars trying to write about the whole viral phenomenon on the internet and everything like that. And so. One of the things that he does is has, he has a number of people with whom he regularly corresponds, and he is actually asking them, okay, what is it like? What is YouTube like? What are all these things like? Um, yeah, interesting, and I'll be very curious to see what his new book looks like. Um, I know he already did an, basically an updated version of Industrial Society and its Future, but now the new one is, is going to be something else. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's had some things published, but 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 in the past few years, but it's not exactly clear where the legality of some of these things are. So none of them are on any sort of mainstream publisher. Pharaoh House did a collection of his stuff, which I think included a new and improved version. Um, But mostly it came off as a collection of essays. And And I think I saw someone did like a Lulu reprint or like something like that of new essays by him. But, um, he's burned, burned his bridges with most, uh, sympathetic political publishers, uh, us included, um, because of, basically because, to put it, I'm going to sidebar for a second. So I have a general uh, critique of anthropology that includes a critique of relying on professionals um, to sort of supply your information. And so the, 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 dis, the, the falling out that's happened between John Zerzan and Ted Kaczynski is because of them basically both picking different interpretations of anthropology, anthropological material, and sort of saying, this is what the past was like, and disagreeing with each other, and therefore splitting with each other politically. So in particular, Ted basically has sort of gone against the Salins approach that says, you know, that prior to civilization or what, what anarcho-primitives call civilization, that, you know, we worked 15 to two hours, 15 minutes to two hours a day, and that our life was, you know, more or less pacifistic, pacifistic and we all liked each other and got along, and gender uh, uh, division of labor didn't exist, there was gender egalitarianism, etc. And that would be the position that John still takes. Ted basically pulled out a lot of anthropology saying, all of this is wrong, that that there is a lot of truth to how short, brutal, and um, 
you know, ugly life was. And that involved a lot of work, a lot of hard work. <laughs> and that um, his argument was that labor, time spent laboring for survival was about the same yeah. as it is now. And in the context of gender equality, the, the reason why we basically broke with Ted was uh, he wrote this essay that we were trying to transcribe about uh, gender equality where he sort of referred to time and time again uh, devious squaws. And, um, <laughs> and I totally didn't know about this. Yeah, and for, and for those who don't know, squaw, uh, if the actual translation of the term squaw is vagina. And this basically has to do with the way in which, um, you know, any native language was was learned sort of by uh, by some version of violence. And so uh, the story goes that, you know, some some man basically was grabbing his penis and saying, man, and pointing to a woman and sort of asking what the word was for a woman. And the response was squaw. Because, of course, not being idiots, the people responded with the same body part that, that the white man was referring to. And uh, so, in this, so in this case, you know, squaw has obviously has lasted for several hundred years as a term that's, being, that's, that's used to mean native women. Um, which, of course, you know, it was only actually the, the tribe that was being spoken to that squaw has any meaning for at all. But more pointedly, squaw actually meant vagina rather than uh, woman. And uh, and devious squaws, you know, has has a particular cadence. Um, I mean, you basically can see this in the context of like cowboy movies and John Wayne movies back in the day, where like you know, the men acted brave and and would stand and fight with the white man, where the women, whatever whatever it is that the women would do in the context of whatever the uh, colonial conflict was happening, was devious. Anyways, all that said, uh, that was. The, the 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 tree that are falling out <laughs> was uh, fruit of yeah ITS yeah so there I also wanted to touch on the ITS communique that came out this past week um, and mostly it's about them bringing in the new year and more or less saying we're still here and and we're and, back we're back and we're back because the the I guess you would call it coalition that was Wild Reaction dissolved and ITS reformed on its own after having ostensibly dissolved itself into that umbrella group. Um, and so, yeah, mostly it's there saying we're back and here's all these things that we've done over the past few years and <clears throat> we're reaffirming most of what we've said, but the difference was that they have now declared themselves anti-rational. And so I want to read two short excerpts that address this, and this first part's about halfway through the piece. We have tossed in the waste bin the rationalism and scientism of our first communiques. Now we rejoice in our pagan roots, and we create gods from our personal dwellings in nature and from its cyclical progress, uh, sorry, cyclical processes. A bit later, they say, uh, it fills us with joy when tornadoes destroy urban areas, as well as when storms flood and endanger defenseless citizens. The same is the case when we see those who freeze to death in the cold winter, or when we see people wounded in earthquakes, for these are responses and reactions as well to the technological system and civilization. We learn from nature and its violent reactions. 
Nature doesn't stop when faced with subways or rural or urban buildings. It doesn't respect the common citizen or the scientific specialist. It is relentless. It destroys everything in its path without consideration for morality. With this, we are personifying in animist style wild nature, because in our pagan belief, nature is the unknown force of the first hunter with the same color skin as the earth, who with the first gatherer woman with braids of feathers, dances over the corpse of modernity and shakes the minds of those who feel in their gut the moribund bleeding of the earth, or sorry, beating of the earth. I mean, what's what's amazing about this is you can really divide up sort of all the people that we know in terms of their reactions to this yeah. uh, to this statement. Yeah. Because, of course, I mean, and we really saw this on E-News, like the people who uh, love the idea of a tornado uh, hitting a city, you know, that would be a small group of people. Yeah. And the people who think that that's a great tragedy that, you know, perhaps we should be pre- preventing if we could. I mean, like, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, the way it reads to me is this sort of fantastic, spectacular anti-humanism where yeah. they want to push it to the the most extreme example, where if... It's Wizard of Oz anti-humanism. Yeah, and it just becomes this, this strange thing all over again where, you know, you're saying that you want to be anti-humanist, and you're saying you want to be anti-rational, and you're saying you want to be anti-Western every possible way that you can... But then you go so far that way that it sort of falls back on itself and becomes Manichaean all over again, where you've decided that the good is wild nature, and somehow wild nature is personified, even though you claim to be animus. And is angry about civilization. And is angry about civilization, civilization is the bad. And somehow animus and pagan are used synonymously in this, which I'm wondering is if that's a translational issue or what. Could be. But to me... From my understanding of animism, which is fairly limited, the one of the last things you would be doing would be personifying mm. deities, especially personifying the, the entirety of of nature, and it you know it appears as these human figures and these sort of gender essentialist human figures that dance together. I don't know; the whole thing is strange. Um, but I mean, just to I'm going to take the side of ITS. Here, okay, go please. Mostly because this reads as poetry to me. Sure, and. And so there are those who read poetry literally and they do not enjoy highly it. Highly analytically. <laughs> and highly analytically. And they have a different kind of joy with with uh, that treatment. But but I think that, I mean, where I'm very sympathetic to their position is, is this idea that, like, big things happen and small things happen that, that combined are perhaps our last hope mm-hmm. against this, this Leviathan. Sure. And and so they're basically saying they've picked a god. Yeah. It's the it's the god of that of the big and the small. That that you know by by weed and by horrific by ca- tornado, catastrophe, yeah. you know it, it is is on our side against the the forces of modernity. But and so I I give them a lot of leeway to sort of express that that sort of thing. And I would say that I, I share it, but I don't necessarily share the joy and all the suffering that it will, will involve. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I often say when I when I talk to red anarchists about the workers' revolution that's going to happen and transform society is how much that discounts the incredible amount of discomfort and agony and death and violence that such a transformation would result in. And I and I feel like the 
the difference between red and green oftentimes is, is, is right here, where the green always have to sort of talk about the death and the agony and the pain and the suffering as a sort of like as a front point, whereas a lot of red and more like civilized perspectives never talk about the pain and suffering and anguish of tearing apart, you know, um, uh, trucks bringing material back and forth across the country mm. and, you know, and airplanes doing the same and all the rest. And, uh, yeah, so they have a different attitude towards the, the, the same suffering that, that would actually be the result of any sort of transformation at all. Yeah, and just to clarify, I mean, I, I was poking fun to some degree and saying strange over and over, but I can, I would say I'm not entirely without sympathy for what they're saying. Um, I, you know, the personification, I don't know, whenever gods get into things, I get, I guess, nervous <laughs> would be the way of putting it, but, sure. but uh, my introduction to anti-civ thought was basically being a catastrophist. Uh, I spent a, a maybe a year or two in my early twenties being really into the you know trying to figure out if and when and how it was going to happen. And I mean, I would say I still have catastrophist sympathies today, and and it's absolutely a, a sort of comes with some re- religiosity. And, and when I'm being really self-critical, I I won't allow myself to feel that way, and I would never stake my analysis on saying catastrophes definitely going to come and you know i even know approximately what year it's going to happen and i I would never want to stake my analysis on it i don't think it's necessary to have an anti-civ analysis i think it in a lot of ways it hurts the anti-civ analysis but i am you know when i let myself be emotional about things i I wouldn't mind seeing a fucking catastrophe whereas i probably am i'm definitely not a catastrophist in that sense i've never been i've never believed that the catastrophe was coming in my lifetime but i am very sympathetic you know again to the to the fact that they're beginning a conversation about what does rationalism mean mm-hmm. because i do prob- probably agree with them that something that is anti-rational is you know these are the things that we're likely to see in our time like like i think that that climate change riots are coming to our country. Yeah. It's just a matter of when, yeah. not how, not if. And, and, and those will be riots that are absolutely anti-rational. In other words, they won't just be about my community and, and some tragedy that's happened to my community. They'll be about the, about something that's larger. Well, they will be about, holy fuck, the ideology that I've been living under all this time is suddenly revealing itself as not having a bottom to it. And so my fucking job that I've spent 25 years at now doesn't mean anything, even though really it never did, and so on and so forth. And I mean, I, I yeah, I expect terror <laughs> in a far deeper sense than we're used to hearing the term. And let's smoothly transition to talking sure. about humor. Sure. From terror to humor. <laughs> it's a thin line.
I'm um, uh, the past week or two, and again the the gap in in uh, in recording to to these episodes going live will probably be a burden here. But in the past few weeks, there's been a lot of uh, focus on this podcast because of a perception that we are obsessed with uh, this term called struggleismo, which is a term we've brought up a couple of different times. We have not necessarily given given a great definition. Uh, for it, but um, uh, but there's been a little bit of writing where uh, where I discussed the idea. Um, but I guess the, the the point that's sort of been lost and that I think is uh, extremely important is about humor. So to me, the term struggleismo came out of a joke and out of sitting in a room with people joking around, and uh, struggleismo came out of that kind. Con- out of those conversations, because it really sounds very funny, um, and and humor has been a uh, an interesting thing in my in my political life because it's always been the thing that I thought that I thought that anarchists really lacked. Right? The entire you know all radicals sort of are not particularly interesting or or good when it comes to humor, but it's the thing that anarchists at the very least should be. Uh, I would say even obsessed with, because the idea of anarchism, the idea of a of a total transformation of society that ends the state and ends capitalist relationships, is so impossible that that any conversation around it should end in peals of laughter and joy, because barring sort of the possibility of a politic mired in the world, anarchism is a politic mired in a very different world, and that world. It, to my eyes and to my ears, should be joyous and and really really funny. Additionally, my sense of humor is sort of a um, abrasive, abrasive, or I mean, um, or perhaps one that that takes as much as it gives, and um, uh, and so as a result, a lot of times it, it looks and feels like me making fun of people. My expectation, of course, is that I made fun of in return, but as the last few weeks have really demonstrated, that isn't that doesn't tend to be the response. In other words, there isn't a sort of sense of joyousness and friendliness in the responses. Instead, there's sort of a, a sense of what I would call Christian judgmentalness and sort of sobriety. Um, so you know, because because the the, the the transformation between this world and a different world is going to involve so much sacrifice and hard work that the last thing we should do is make fun of ourselves for trying to do it. And those who do make fun of us for it are basically, you know, evil bastards who, um, you know, who should be taken down um, in one way or another. And and for me, the point of, a, of having an acerbic sense of humor isn't to take other people down, but is to meaningfully... Um, is to is to be honest, is to be honest and and joyful, I guess, and and you know, some, to some extent, I accept the fact that like my style is not other people's style, but on the other hand, I feel like um, this conversation has gotten extremely toxic, and um, yeah, and sort of has has limited my, well, it's definitely limited my sense of humor. I would say over the past few years, just sort of having moral um, uh, condemnations made of me time and time again that really are just about me joking around and me trying to uh, make jokes 
has really taken a lot of the my my humorous wind out of my sails. I often describe myself nowadays as not being funny anymore. So, thank you very much. <laughs> so, to be to to give maybe something that resembles a, f- a fair hearing to the side that you're talking about. There's a position I've heard articulated in various permutations many times since I started being an anarchist, which says something like, and I actually remember the first time I heard it, was, I'm trying to think of the fucking name of the person. He was an ALF person who I went to see speak. It was Peter something. Mm -hmm. And he had just gotten out of prison. Young, Peter Young. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah. And someone actually was, uh, Kalen Sherrard was in the audience. And he gave the speech, and it was good talk, and there were a few questions, and Kalen raised his hand, and he said, what do you think of the place of humor in what you're doing? Mm-hmm. And Peter Young visibly bristled and said something like, well, I, I don't really understand what the place of it would be. Uh, this is very serious. It involves serious risks. It involves mm-hmm. serious planning. You need to have discipline to pull it off. You need to train yourself, learn all the skills, and so forth. And it's legitimately scary. And if you think it's sort of fun and games, then there's not really room in it for you. And so that's probably the first time I heard it, but then in various ways I've heard something that goes like, it's really hard to be an anarchist, it's really hard to work up the nerve to do acts of resistance, and irony exists as a way that we self-deprecate and act as if we're not serious and we're not really capable of doing things. And the more that we make fun of ourselves, the more that we find ourselves mired in this sense of learned helplessness. Yeah, I mean, just to be blunt in terms of my response to that particular sort of direction, if the revolution is not happening today or in your lifetime, the work that you would do, whether it's to resist that machine or just to live life... Um, you have to have a, a sort of reasonable plan B. And a reasonable plan B um, should mean that you live. In other words, it shouldn't mean that you just sacrifice yourself for a possible future or sacrifice yourself for something that may may or may not ever come. Whether Jesus is coming back or not, you need to live today. And... For me, a complete life involves humor, and um, so, anyways, I I, I just want to sort of mention that struggleismo was meant more in the context of a term like manarchism, which well, I think when it started out was supposed to be funny and sort of, I mean, I've actually never heard someone point to some point at somebody and shout manarchist, but obviously <laughs> the the internet can yeah. be a little confusing. <laughs> you haven't been around some of the people I've been around that live here. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the point was, was to sort of, uh, take a, was to make a humorous take at a, what what I think is, is a real problem rather than to turn it into a term like lifestylist, which, you know, an entire book was written basically talking about how bad lifestylists were and actually trying to make the case that lifestylist, bad, social anarchist, good. Lifestylists make a lot of jokes. Yes, they do. That's true. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah and I, w- I wanted to add, I feel like the the idea that if you're joking or I- if you live with humor, that's, that means that your anarchism is somehow less 
full of vigor sure. is very similar to me to the to what I've said in the past about the perception of the pessimist that you know if you don't believe if you're the pessimist then it means it's somehow enervating your anarchism it, you're it's it's weaker you're not going to try as hard I I, f I feel the same sort of judgment is made about the humor hmm. and I, I think in both cases it's false it's this uh, conflation with uh, a an imagined um, actual orientation with the, you know a, a certain outlook or perception yeah yeah it's it's interesting to to talk about the ways in which radicals call each other apostates versus how Christians do because of course Christians you know they have no shame in what it is that they do and so they don't need to obscure that they're basically saying you hell me heaven fuck you you know in our case it's it's sort of ends up being these very complicated circular arguments about no you're the one who's saying that I'm an apostate because you're calling me a struggleismo and uh and so that uh, particular form of contradancing does not seem very interesting to me and uh, uh so I give up oh. seems like something a lifestylist would do <laughs> give up yeah <laughs> Uh, shall we move on to bioregionalism? Okay, so to give the backstory for those of you who um, might not have listened to previous episodes, we recorded probably two months ago. Actually, no, it was it was exactly two months ago. Yeah, two months ago we recorded two episodes where I was trying to talk about the the sort of direction I'm heading and some related projects that I find exciting that had to do with. With forest gardening, that had to do with um, what uh, seaweed and his recent book has been calling insurrectionary subsistence. Um, this idea of recreating human habitat or creating a, a new kind of habitat for humans and non-humans, and confused, confusedly and confusingly, I was calling it bioregionalism because th that was a word that I had heard a few times over the years, and I guess I just made this sort of assumption from the etymology <laughs> that it sure. was something that I that I liked or something that like oh that's the word for the thing that I'm into and so we recorded two episodes that ended up getting lost because the files were corrupted and during it we actually had a very confusing beginning where we were mm. arguing with each other and not really I think that we were mutually not making sense and I think part of it was the vocabulary that I was bringing and so what I ended up finding out later was that I was actually oblivious to the history of this term 
and the people who used it and really what they were advocating for. And so I was just trying to use it as a tagline for my agenda to get anarchists more interested in forest gardening. <laughs> and this was an abuse of the term and a, I guess a bad propaganda strategy. So this is sort of a, a retake on it. And so what I found out was that bioregionalism actually comes from post-60s environmental activists who it's were... Ecology. comes out of ecology. It comes out of ecology. Yeah. It, these were activists who were frustrated with the failures of the environmental movement. Mm -hmm. And in particular, this guy Raymond Dosman and this guy Peter Berg were the people that really pushed it. And what they didn't like was that the 60s, 70s, or the 60s environmental movement was so much about protest, we're against industrialism, we're against corporate abuse, we're against all these things, and they were people who wanted to be for. For something. For right. something. And so Peter Berg says, a bioregion is a geographic area defined by natural characteristics, including watersheds, landforms, soils, blah, blah, blah. It goes on for a while. These characteristics are continuous. In other words, when there are changes in these characteristics, you've gone from one bioregion to another. Obviously, these borders are soft and wide, as opposed to linear and sharp in the present geopolitical sense of boundary. And what I see this doing is trying to create a term to champion a view, and a lot of that has some good things. And then it's some, a, so, a green social position. It's a green social position. There are a few good things about it. Ultimately, I totally reject it. I want to talk about the good things first, yeah. which are that there's a, there was a turn away from what I would call the the very Manichaean understanding of the mainstream environmental movement, which is industry bad, humans necessarily harmful, nature pretty thing that stays away from the human being, uh, non-human animals, you know, virtuous things stay away from them, maybe come visit and look at them, but you, the human, are necessarily a harmful thing, and the best thing that we can do as humans is keep our distance in certain ways and try to consume better and consume less, and then we leave these nature preserves. Mm -hmm. And what bioregionalism was saying was actually the human being it's is an animal and can be part of a healthy ecosystem. And I think that's totally a good thing. I totally agree with it. Their implementation, though, is terrible for a number of reasons. One is that when you actually look at what they're saying, it totally collapses into this liberal position of, well, what we should do is go into the bioregion and see what kind of agriculture and industry are appropriate. And so it's not trying to, it's not really taking a radical analysis. It's not looking at the history of agriculture and the history of industry. It's not saying any economy that is based, or any, if you have an economy that produces waste that is not food for something else, that's a prima facie problem that's ultimately going to fuck you over. What's it's not the, saying... What's the example? What's the example of... Of, of, the, of, of this badness? In other words, what's an example of a bioregional proposal or implementation mm -hmm. that exemplifies what you're talking about? Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is based on this whole native plant thing. So you go in and you say well, what used to grow here, and then now let's grow it in a row crop, and let's still do <laughs> plow culture, and let's still do, mm. you know, except we're, it's going to be nice because it's a native plant, and so it's going to be less disruptive. Mm -hmm. And 
So it doesn't really get to the roots, it doesn't throw out agriculture and industry. And then the second thing is, it's still a way of thinking that's predicated on borders. And there's a kind of wishy-washiness about it that says we are creating these natural borders and we are not um, arbitrarily drawing political borders, but the way that they talk about it is still very much couched in this idea that there are going to be certain cultures operating within borders, and when you cross from one to the other, you're crossing a political economic boundary. Mm -hmm. And so you have this sort of ghost of the nation state still existing. So Cascadia being a, yeah. a clear example yeah. of this. Cascadia, and then when in um, the GA Back to Basics, they actually had, or sorry, so Green Anarchy did Back to Basics things where they, they talked about bioregionalism. And when you look at the map, there are these massive regions, which in itself seems... Rid not true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seems anti-ecological yeah. on, on the most basic level, and and seems to suggest what? There are going to be huge, you know, more or less uniform human cultures operating in each of these? Because I don't see how that doesn't get us back to, again... Nation state. Yeah. yeah. Um, the way that anarchists have taken it up in GA... Um, I want to read a little spiel here. Uh, so they say bioregions are areas identified by natural features, so on and so forth. Fundamental to the rewilding process is developing an awareness of the natural features, the plants, animals, and minerals that define our lives. Sure. Um, this can lead us toward re-inhabitation of a place. That sounds great. But then uh, you go on. They say native plants have developed for millennia to flourish within very specific niches. Civilization has plowed through these highly ecologically developed regions and replaced the biodiversity that springs from niche filling with a limited culture of plants and animals that flourish in waste areas, cities, roadsides, farmyards, subdivisions, overgrazed pasture lands, and parking lots. So, you know, there are certain things that I agree with, like absolutely ecological disruption is happening, absolutely it's because of civilization, but what the AP discourse has done is re-imputed that same kind of Manichaeanism or Manichaeism where a you know a big part of what's motivating it is again you've created this duality of the human being that exists separate from and outside some sort of imagined pristine pre-existing nature which seems to defeat for me the one gain that came out of the bioregional perspective in the first place hmm. which is which is I'd, not creating this human nature duality well the, but this is one of the problems with rewilding in general right is that it's sort of talking about how does one live as if there were not civilization while there's civilization mm -hmm. so it could be argued to be similar to a lot of uh, uh, partial perspectives that basically says pretend like the world doesn't exist now how do we live freely mm-hmm which is, you know, a nice exercise in imagination, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, I guess uh, for me it was instructive in the sense that I feel I need to be more careful with my words. And, um, well, it's hard not to use jargon. It's that... hard not to use jargon. It's nice to have taglines. Mm -hmm. I have a bioregional perspective. Wow, it seems like you're really coming from somewhere. You've got a lot. <laughs> I'd sleep with that. <laughs> Um, Do you want to read the, uh, some seaweed quotes? I did. Um, so you, you feel like they've broken from this or that they... they totally. Yeah, totally. And there, there's a great bit 
where it's an exchange between Wolfie Landstriker and Seaweed about this topic. In what context? In in talking about bioregionalism versus what they are for. And this happened in a magazine? This happened in um, Seaweed's Land and Freedom oh, book. I didn't yeah. realize that Wolfie was in there. Uh, just It's just a long quote from Wolfie with some sort of personal correspondence they had. Oh, cool. So this comes as the postscript to Seaweed's essay, Permanent Subsistence Zones, which is a great essay. And so Wolfie writes... Bioregionalism takes a conception, a human mental construction, developed to try to understand certain types of environmental relationships, and treats it as a, as a thing, an actual bounded area of land. This is an unfortunate tendency that human beings seem to have, with all the conceptions we have developed, for understanding complex relationships, society, culture, gender, race, ethnicity, nation, etc. When this tendency toward reification institutionalizes, the boundaries we imagined are made real by force and agreement. Cops, armies, walls, treaties, pacts, etc. If I understand bioregionalism, it is a name given to the reality that the relationship between all living and natural factors in a given area tend to create a specific environment amenable to specific living beings. Thus far, there is no problem. But there are no real boundaries between these areas, but rather gradations from one into the other. This is true even of rivers, mountains, and oceans. Thus, in healthy natural environments, there are constant interchanges between these areas, which keeps them in a state of constant, but usually gradual, change. Therefore, bioregions as such do not actually exist. They are simply constructs we use for developing certain understandings. Talking of basing how one lives on assuming that a specific mental construct is a concrete reality is dangerous, particularly when it assumes that the Earth is something that is naturally divided into clearly definable sections. It can be the source of a great deal of ugliness, including territorialism, quasi-patriotism, and property, even if it is conceived of as property of the community. And Seaweed responds to a few things, but his conclusion, which I'll read here, is Wolfie's assessment of bioregionalism is essentially correct. Um, for the reasons he shared, bioregionalism does not reflect my destination. Rather, the expression habitat is closer to what I am proposing. These are places created by us and which create us, not specific boundaries one would recognize on an environmental map. And so, yeah, I think the one thing I would add to that is that this conception of a bioregion devoid of humans is, is a way of excess, put, placing excessive emphasis on one side of the equation between the uh, the habitat creates us and is created by us. It, it assumes that the, somehow the human is entirely created by the habitat and denies us agency, denies us ecological agency, denies us as being part of what creates a place. And I think that that is an understandable reaction because it's a reaction against the fact that at this, in the Anthropocene, as we like to say, that the human has the, the humanity as a whole has sort of trundled over everything and is in very busy annihilating most of uh, most of what we might think of as the non-human and you know, paving over it quite literally. And so there's this desire, I think, that is, is a sort of apologetic desire or, or some sort of um, self-diminution that says, I just want to completely immerse myself and be created by a bioregion. But that is a way of... Uh, of overreacting. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just, I mean, I, I can already <coughs> prefigure the 
uh, the response to this approach, which, you know, which again basically is saying that uh, it's almost a return to the human, like an egoist bioregionalism, of course, sort of thinks that egos are pretty fucking important, and definitely what you just read sounds like a human-formed world rather than a world-formed world. But that said, a world-formed world might be un- incomprehensible to be- to humans, mm. and you know because we're uh, rational Western humans, that's not possible. Yeah, um, I, you know, I think the way to reach the kind of habitat that seaweed is talking about would be informed first by a lot of observation and a lot of patience and a lot of sitting with a place and and looking at what the, the bulk of it of course not being you what the bulk of it wants to do and then seeing where you can fit in but i wouldn't call that uh, a, a perspective driven by the ego i would call it a perspective that's trying to be patient and trying to be observant and trying to learn mm-hmm. learn how to be human again and i and, and out of out of all of us i will give seaweed credit for sticking to the same area mm-hmm. and actually being involved in this process in a way beyond what any of the rest of us could describe ourselves as doing or being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. And um, what, it, what I wouldn't call what I was describing is a, is a bioregional perspective that uh, goes in and I think brings far too much of the civilized human in and goes in and says, okay, well, what kind of agriculture can I do that won't, that w- won't uh, you know, self-implode as quickly as what we've been doing? Mm-hmm. So you're basically calling it a type of greenwashing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe a more sophisticated greenwashing, but yeah. Okay. So next week, I think we're going to. Oh, I, we, we actually have a whole list. Yeah. Where, where do we do write liber- that down? Libertarian. Oh right, yeah. So we're, we might be dwelling into a, a place that I know almost nothing about, which is uh, libertarians. Yeah, the and, right wing. <laughs> yeah, I mean and, the anti-authoritarian right wing. And mostly, this is coming coming from the perspective that there are more people who are sort of sniffing around anarchism from a formally right perspective. Um, we, we've we've spoken several times of the Unterrified podcast, but also uh, people who live in the in the the world called mutualism, uh, the C4SS website, and so much more. Yeah. So we'll be doing that next week. Thank you for listening.